0: You're listening to episode 77 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing. We're a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. It's the 31st of January here at the studio in Dragon Hall as we're recording. Hello, I'm Simon Jones.
1: And I'm Steph McKenna.
0: And we're joined today by Lily, the programme assistant here at the National Centre for Writing. Hello. So Lily, tell us a little bit about what it means being a programme assistant here.
2: Um, It basically means that I have logistical role in a lot of our public facing programs it means i get to meet a lot of really interesting people coming and going from dragon hall we always have writers all around us coming and going and um, lots of public facing events such as festivals Uh, we have workshops that we run regularly and also insight sessions coming up as well so it's a really exciting program
0: yeah chances are anyone who's come along to an event recently has probably seen you Somewhere in the background, making sure everything runs smoothly. Just yes. making
1: sure things are like completely smooth is my uh, take on these job. She's the one that keeps it all actually working and running to time. Yes.
2: I'm often the one in the background with the clipboard, just making sure everyone knows what they're doing and that the program will run smoothly. Being
1: hyper-organized.
2: Exactly.
0: Yeah. Uh, On the podcast today, we have an interview with Ashley Stokes, who is an editor. He works for the Literary Consultancy and was here to do a session a few months ago now, and we talked to him all about the ins and outs of editing. Now, that session was a free one that was provided by our Writers' Toolkit programme, and we thought we'd have a little look about some of the stuff we've got coming up this year. Lily, what are you looking forward to in particular
2: Um, Well, I personally am really looking forward to um, the creating an online presence for your writing session, and that's happening on Friday the 7th of February, so pretty soon. Um, And we've got Lena Norms coming, and um, she's a really interesting person to speak to about online presence, because not only does she sort of market herself online, as a storyteller producer she also has a very popular podcast and a youtube channel with over 4 million views so if you've got questions about how to use social media and online platforms to get your writing out into the world or build an online community then she's a really great person to talk to about that
0: yeah i think as a writer you're either someone who has not done any of that stuff yet mm-hmm. and it's a complete mystery and terrifying mm-hmm. or you have done some of it and you're extremely annoyed because it hasn't worked as well yeah. if you want
1: yeah so it's a bit of an art isn't it and I think <laughs> nowadays more and more writers are having to do sort of social media and digital promotion as part of their role as a writer to get their work out there you have to you have to be willing to do quite a lot of self-promotion I think
0: for yeah. people to kind of and I think that's regardless them. of how you're being published mm-hmm. as well yeah. so I think a while back, it would be the self-publishers who yeah. had to be good at this stuff. But yeah. increasingly, it feels like no matter how your book's going out, mm. you, you have to know how to. Promote. I think
1: traditional publishing houses um, also require you or hope that you will have some sort of online presence um, for your writing as well. So it's a po- It's getting, It's really popular. We've sold quite a few places on this already, but there are still some left. It will sell out before the day takes place. So if you want to get on it, grab a ticket quick.
0: As the saying goes. As the saying goes. (laughs) Something else we've got coming up is called The Alchemy of Research, Transforming Facts into Fiction, which I think is a fascinating subject that pretty much any writer is going to benefit from. And this is being delivered by Sarah Bauer, who we work with here on all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. She's coming back in her capacity as a writer Mm -hmm. to talk about how to research a novel and figure out... How much research to do and mm. how to convert it into a story.
1: Yeah, because I guess you could research forever, really, couldn't you? You could keep digging around and doing all the preliminary stuff and never get started on your actual writing. So it's, yeah, getting the hang of how much research to do, how much fact you need to put into your fiction, all of these sorts of things. Sarah's a really uh, successful historical fiction writer, so this is very much her bread and butter. And a workshop that I'm really looking forward to is taking place at the end of February, so Friday the 28th of February, and it's The Language of Food with Cara Marks. So this is uh, more of a I guess a niche workshop, it's only two hours long. Um, I just think it sounds really, really interesting. I really love novels and fiction that feature food quite a lot. So Cara is a writer and she's currently researching a PhD on food and empathy from a literary perspective at Queen's University in Belfast. So in this workshop, Cara will be looking at approaches and techniques to help you get started in food writing. So whether that's, whether you're a food critic or a budding food critic, or you'd like to sprinkle some colour detail into your fiction. Carl will be talking about the world of food and writing.
0: Nice. Did you know there are websites and books that give recipes for how to convert crazy food from sci-fi and fantasy books into actual food?
1: Really? Yeah. No, I didn't know that at all. That sounds really interesting. That is a thing. Maybe we'll have to link to it on Twitter.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We'll put it in the show notes if we, if we can dig it out. And also on the, the subject of food and how it can be useful mm. when you're writing, I remember... Ryan Coogler, the director of Black Panther, amongst other things, but he was saying how when he was creating the fictional world Mm. in that, it was really important for him to show people, just in the background, actually buying and eating food. Oh, interesting. He was saying when you create a completely fictional situation, Mm. if you don't have anyone eating then it's hard to believe it as a real place.
1: Yeah, that's true. All of those sort of, not mundane tasks, but those daily things that you do, if you have people filling in the background Mm -hmm. doing those everyday things. It Mm -hmm. does, it helps to world build, doesn't it? Yes,
0: verisimilitude. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You can find out about our full Writers' Toolkit programme over on the website, of course, at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. Okay, let's get straight into our interview with Ashley Stokes. Ashley, thanks for joining us today. Uh, To kick off, I thought we'd go right down to the basics of what is the role of an editor?
3: What is the role of an editor? Um, Well, generally, generally, an editor helps prepare a text for publication. Um, If I think across the range of activities that I'm involved in, though, uh, as a small small press publisher sometimes, uh, and as a creative writing teacher, and also writer myself, can see that like um, an editorial process... um, can involve a kind of tip sheet or checklist you give to a student to help them edit their own work without you supervising them. Um, For When publishing, it's to prepare a text and a book so it becomes ready for publication, Um, it's production, it's polishing. Uh, And in your own work, again, it's making your work as short and concise and as brilliant as it can possibly be, and that might involve another editor. Um, But the work that I do for the literary consultancy is much more of a kind of a creative engagement with someone else's book that attends to its superstructure and also provides a report that will help them produce, hopefully, a more commercial and artistically realised draft.
0: So lots of different potential roles.
3: Yes, yeah, um, lots of different things. I mean, obviously, it's a, a, a job that is um, can be seen in several lines.
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting how you're saying that part of that is, all, is also... Tutoring writers to be better editors of their own work. Yeah, that's
3: right. As well. Mm, Yes, that's right. I mean, obviously, sometimes a creative writing uh, course will involve an editing session in which you might provide a checklist of things to look out for in your own work. Like, for example, using too many adjectives or adverbs. You need to interrogate that type of word because they tend to explain. Um, So, yeah, helping writers become their own editor reinforcing really as well that writing is a process mm. um that uh, drafting is part of the process of writing and as valid as the kind of hot inspiration that might, be, might you know, help you get through the first draft of a novel yes often i find that people have written one draft and they're happy with that rather than thinking they have got to think about it again mm-hmm.
0: um, yeah and i think part of it is helping people to spot what can be better that's right Yes, because uh, that initial satisfaction of finishing the first draft and going oh I've done it um, when actually that's step one almost
3: that's step one yeah there is like a really really nice feeling when you write in the first draft that something gets longer and there's something should be a really really nice experience in the second draft that something gets shorter <laughs> um, and learning to like that I think is quite important
0: yeah so I mean critical feedback is so important to the creation of a book in the writer's exist kind of in a a vacuum by themselves for the first draft. And then after that, that's when other people start coming in such as yourself to help shape it into something more refined.
3: I think writing usually is in the dark, Mm. um, as you're saying in a vacuum. Um, and during that time you're in the dark, even if you're only writing a novel over a very brief period, like two or three months, or it, i had people that have written a novel in a week and then look for a publisher for it. Um, all sorts of things can intrude on your thinking. It is a private act that you commit in, in, in a public act that you commit in private. So during that process, people start to get excited about how famous they're going to be or how much money they're going to be or the revenge that they're going to get from writing their book or like they're now going to be the um, the object of academic scrutiny and really an editor's job is to act as a war- early warning system for this type of kind of misdirection of one's thoughts
0: yeah I suppose if a book somehow made it to publication without any editing process, they're going to bump into that critical critical feedback in a really unpleasant way. That's quite possible, yeah. And <laughs> the we... editor's like a, a, a check.
3: Yeah, that's right. You you find that with people who self publish sometimes that actually the world has reacted very strongly against what they've they've written for whatever reason for the subject or the or the execution of it. Uh, and the editor is there to help you not, you know, is to help to help you some ways to um, make this uh, transition from private to public.
0: Yeah, I've seen some newer writers and less experienced writers be worried that an editor is going to come in and change the book or tear it apart, and no one knows the book better than they do, and that kind of thing. Um, what would you say to people who are in that position and are maybe now considering an editor but are, are worried about that kind of teamwork? I've got
3: to make a distinction here between an editor at a publishing house and a consultancy editor. An editor at a publishing house might possibly suggest all kinds of cuts the writer doesn't like. Uh, and that is to be negotiated between them. Um, however, when who you, you have already reached the stage of having the book accepted for publication at that point. And we can think of historical examples of... Um, uh, Raymond Carver is a very good example of this, whose editor chopped his stories down to make them Carver-esque, and Carver really, really resented <laughs> this, even though what we think of as a Carver story is, in fact, a list story. Um, a cons- an agent um, editor, the type of editing that I do, one of my first concerns is, and the first question I ask, is what is the writer trying to do? If I know what the writer's trying to do and I can sense that or they can articulate it, then I can help them achieve what they want to achieve. That's very, very different from um, the type of scissor hands approach you might get in certain publishing houses. Um, but we can also think as well that the editor's job isn't necessarily easy. You think of working with some writers who might have had lots of books published that won't be edited, and therefore the editor's instinct might be right, this book should be shorter or these flowery passages should be removed in some sort of way. So always, really, you're trying to forge a professional relationship, a mutually respectful and creative relationship with somebody that leads to them writing better, mm-hmm. you know, to writing more effective and exciting prose. Yeah,
0: yeah it's always interesting when you if you watch... Massively successful book series over time, and each book gets larger and larger and larger, and it feels sometimes <laughs> like the, the editor is having less and less influence. Over that's, that that's
3: right. Yes, Um because sometimes people think everything they've written is golden and should stay in, um, <laughs> and you know, let's let's judge that on its merits.
0: Yeah, and you've worked and edited an enormous number of manuscripts. So is it over a thousand? Around a thousand.
3: Somewhere between nine hundred and a thousand. Yeah,
0: that obviously must require a lot of adapting to wildly different styles, both in the writing style and personality of the writers. How do you approach each new book?
3: Um, Well, I've learned over time, and it's over like 1998 I started being a TLC editor. Um, over time, I've learned so much about genre fiction that I wouldn't, probably wouldn't have learned without doing this work. So I have learned how a thriller works mm-hmm. and what I therefore should be looking at and how a fantasy novel works. That um, Again, I wouldn't probably have learned that otherwise. Um, but really, and I do like lots and lots of different things, I'm quite an eclectic reader. So some, and some writers and readers aren't. Um but the first thing I'm always looking for is the writing fluent. You know, it's a little bit like live music that um you know you might not like jazz but you go into a fantastic little bar and there's some live band playing, it kind of wins you over. Mm-hmm. If the writing is fluent, even though it might not be the type of subject area that you're necessarily interested in or type of people, you tend to get carried along a little bit by the by the writer's enthusiasm for the world in which they're conjuring. So that's the first thing. And that's a big mixture of style and also kind of character, voice. Some quality called voice in the writing that starts to speak to you as soon as you you start to read a book so if that's there then that's one thing for me and the other is the superstructure of the story do we start with a problem that we address all the way through until we come, come up with some kind of truth or solution? And is this driven by the agency and action of the characters rather than them being dragged along behind it? So those things are true and exciting in all types of fiction, mm-hmm. whether that's a space opera or a Raymond Carver story. Uh, so I'm kind of looking out for those, those things. The other thing I was, perhaps I'm looking out for as well is genre and how the character plays with genre conventions, because that might be, help them become more commercial. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's the, that's the. So I do have to be adaptive and adoptive, but there's no point um, thinking about a cosmic horror novel in the way that you think about a uh, mainstream literary novel. They have different rules of engagement, and you need to know what they are.
0: Yeah. And so your approach uh, with the the TLC work is very much that superstructure level. Your presumably not getting down to kind of individual lines and editing the, the specific wording of things. The
3: most useful thing for the author at a stage when they've usually written one draft of a novel is to look at the story superstructure and how the main characters are presented, for example. However, we do attend to micro the, the sort of microcosmic as well. And if someone's got a recurring stylistic glitch or issue then we will mention that with references Um, you do notice sometimes writers have problems with overwriting or underwriting or switching the point of view or Mm -hmm. using too many adjectives using the same words over and over again Um, things like that that you might well mention not controlling tense Uh, these are common kind of stylistic issues which which cause writers problems and we will tend to that as well
0: Um, what point should a writer think about getting involved with an editor uh, I think that you should start to learn to do
3: as much as possible yourself before you pay an editor to read your work. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like people need to get kind of used to drafting. That sh- you should have put it through its paces two or three times before you think yeah. about showing it to anybody professionally. So I would say after, maybe I wouldn't after that first draft, uh, maybe second draft, I would think about looking for an editor. But really when you feel you've got a question here, you can't answer yourself. Yeah. yeah, when you've reached a point where I don't know what I've got. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether this is any good anymore.
0: Yes. Yeah.
3: Uh, or oh, I don't know. And I do have people that have written a really, really good book and they'll write to you and say, I don't know whether this is any good. So you can help them, explain to them what is working about their book and maybe what they'd like to look at to adjust. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, when you feel like you have um, uh, no way of answering your own questions, that might be a good time to employ an editor. Yeah. Plenty of writers as well aren't working in – they're not in a writer's workshop. They're not in a. They're not in a reading group. Um, they don't know anybody else who reads fiction seriously, so they haven't really got anybody to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, so those people do kind of can use some editorial assistance. I think.
0: Yeah, you're talking about the, the fluency of the writing being a kind of universal, regardless mm-hmm. of whether it's kind of your sort of book. But how how difficult is it to have that to take that kind of step back to be able to look at you know, the structure and and find the best way to make that book. The best it can be, even if it isn't something you would choose to read, is that kind of a separation that is, has come with experience, as an editor?
3: I think it's. I do think it's a um, it's a uh, a knack you pick up from from um, immersing yourself in the work of others over a protracted period of time. Um, and there are plenty of writers, and editors who can't do this, in that they can only look at the work as if it's the work they would have written themselves. Mm-hmm. And I, but I think it's quite exciting to decode things and to look at how different writers achieve their effects so I'm kind of quite n- n- geeky in that respect I do like to look at structures within stories and see what the writer is doing this makes reading more difficult <laughs> like uh, for pleasure than yes, it did before yeah. you were a writer because um, you're always looking at how do they do that rather than take letting the story carry you along so I always um, remind myself as well that I am doing a job here for somebody and I'm not reading for pleasure mm-hmm. I'm not reading as a as a diversion or um, I am reading to try and help somebody uh, produce something. So it's, you put on your more, your more technocratic head, I suppose, um, and you take it from there.
0: How do writers tend to respond when, when you're working with them? So they've, they've chosen to come to you and you provide your report or the feedback. Did writers tend to be... Receptive, defensive. Do they go through kind of stages of grief with it? Like, <laughs> what, what's the typical kind of response? You get? Or is it all over the shop?
3: It's all over the shop. Uh, there are writers you can encounter who are who really want their feathers stroked in some sort of way, and they may have staked something of themselves. Mm. in writing a book not necessarily the material is very personal but they might be very bullish about their entitlement to success for example so i had an author a few years ago whose letter was telling us how he ran a massive tech company and he couldn't justify taking a six months work vacation he'd taken to write his book so it had to be a success and I explained to him why it was fundamentally flawed mm. he didn't like that that, uh, that approach um And so he just insisted that he wasn't accepting the advice that he was given. So we had to go to another reader who then said the advice was kind of fine. Um, But overall, I'd say 90% of people are happy with the kind of feedback that they get and the feedback is helpful. Mm. It's also, this is not an exact science, so it's quite difficult to know uh, to be 100% right all the time or what that even means being right. Um, You are trying to go above your subjectivity to some extent. Um, but I'd say generally most people do respond well if they're given kind of clear explanations for what is wrong uh, or not working and also given some ideas. You know, I think it's quite... It, to creatively engage with somebody's... Um, uh, work often. You can think, well, you could do this, you could do that, mm-hmm. you could add this, you could take her out and put him in, and you could, you know, you could change the story. So, uh, or the story could start here. We, you know, so to so, so, so have engaged and provided something rather than just saying no.
0: Yes, you know? yes. Yeah. So I was going to ask what the what the kind of balance is in terms of identifying issues and providing solutions and how far you go with those solutions before you start to kind of encroach on what the writer should be doing.
3: Well, I think it's pushing them in the right
0: direction.
3: You can always qualify everything by saying this is just a suggestion. Yeah. Uh, but I might also like suggest, like, why don't you read this? This, yeah. this, might, this might give you an idea mm-hmm. of how to write. Mm-hmm. First person narration from a fifteen-year-old's point of view, for example, yeah. um, or why don't you read this because they're kind of doing all the things that you say you're doing? So maybe you know this, this you know you're kind of ripping this book off. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and uh, also in terms of balance, is your you're saying you know, if if a publisher is editing a book, they're obviously going to have a very close eye on the market. That's right. and how they can sell the book in terms of the work that you do and the kind of part the, the part of the process where you come in. How much are you trying to make it into a great book versus a sellable book? And are they often the same thing anyway? Uh,
3: they're probably the same thing, but you can tell by the letters, the cover letter you get with the manuscript, um, whether the writer is – whether they want the money or the glory <laughs> somehow. Um, so you can kind of tell what what they want. If somebody wants to sell a book to Harper Collins and make a million pounds – and it doesn't have a kind of lead child type reach to it or does not a lot happens or something, you can probably have to have a conversation with them. This might be a good book, but it's not going to do for you it's what you want because publishers want X, Y or Z now. Um, some people that produce a fantastic work of art that... Um, you might have to suggest that you think this book should be published and you should try these various angles, but be prepared that maybe this is too obscure or too difficult for a mainstream audience. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and obviously writers really should go through if they're serious about their own work should kind of go through a process in trying to sell it trying to sell it to mainstream publishers or small publishers to self-publishing. There are plenty of options to get a book out. It's just what you want from that process. Mm And it's harder and harder to make a living out of your own words as it maybe was 20 years ago, 30 years ago.
0: Yeah, I think what's, I've always, I'm I'm interested in self-publishing myself. And I think what's been interesting in that part of the publishing world is how in the last five years or so, it's professionalised a lot. Yes, it is. In the perhaps 10, 15 years ago, self-publishing might have been a way to kind of bypass Having to get your book edited, you know, and it'd be like, oh, I can get my book the way I want it out there. Whereas now I think it's very much the attitude that no, actually all these processes exist for very good reasons. And regardless of the distribution method, editing is a vital part of the process.
3: It is a vital part of the process. And people, we we did mention earlier on, there are people who've made kind of um, a bad reputation for themselves by by reacting to negative criticism of work that clearly wasn't ready to be published, that, that they have published on Kindle. Another thing that strikes me is that since the end of the netbook agreement, various different shortcuts have come around for writers to get their work out um, And they they involve ortholony, which HarperCollins used to run. They involve Kindle. They involve having a blog, being on social media, these type of things that you're told to do. And really, it's only the early adopters of these processes that actually sell any books. Once everyone starts to do it, it becomes impossible to make a choice about what you're going to buy. So go back to the the late 90s. You can think of a few people that self-published books. There was a book called A Year in the Murd, which had been turned down by lots of publishers about um, relocating to France that went on to sell quite a lot of copies. But when everybody can self-publish, it becomes like a big fog. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like when you go on Twitter, everyone is trying to sell you their book, whether they're whichever type of um, publisher that you're represented by. So you're not standing out anymore, or some kind of like pioneer by self-publishing when a few years ago maybe you were. Um, and we can think of problems with self-publishing, like the book looks like self-published. You can tell when a book has been self-published. So people often have you know do a terrible cover. Um, it doesn't. They don't. It doesn't look like a professional product, uh, mm-hmm. um, and not and be, not being edited as well is another of those the, the, those issues. I think. So I would always um, suggest to people they're very cautious about self publishing because they have to learn loads of skills about being a publisher that are quite hard to learn.
0: Theoretically, you can just press a few buttons and do it. Actually, Actually you have to yeah. become a publisher. You do have to become a publisher. Yeah. The yeah. other thing as well
3: is that um, just being on social media doesn't mean you're going to sell any books. And I've seen this sometimes when. Um, uh, with unfake Books, that um, you send out a tweet, for example, and you can see that, oh, it's been retweeted by someone with 40,000 followers, 50,000 followers, and it's adding up to quite a lot of people, but nobody bought it. Mm. Um, so it's, that in itself is quite deceptive. Having a kind of um, social media presence that leads to you selling books is quite... Um, it, it requires a different type of strategy.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. So just to finish up, what would you say... What would your... Your best bit of advice be for a writer who is about to be working with an editor for the first time?
3: Um, I would always suggest to people that they ask, be sure of what stage they're at. If they've only just finished the first draft yesterday, uh, know that that work is going to be rough. Um, So your editor is going to be distracted by how rough it is. So know where you're at. Know what genre of book you've written. Um, and that sounds like an easy uh, a strange question but quite often people will say to me i don't know what genre this book is but it's got a vampire in it so therefore it's a horror novel and it's quite straightforward um but also ask your editor questions come with an agenda come what is about the book that baffles you what is it you don't understand or you'd like help with? Or do you th- do you worry that your central character is either too dislikable or too much of a kind of Pollyanna? Ask these specific questions because the editor can help you with those and it gives them you a, a, um, an agenda that you can have a discussion about afterwards. It's very, very helpful to ask those types of questions rather than just sort of send it off and go, like, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Um, and that helps us be more objective, I think, ultimately. Yeah. So knowing what you want, I think, and yes. what you've done and what you want.
0: It's always the big questions in life. <laughs> always the big questions in life, yeah. I know. Exactly. So thanks, Ashley. Uh, where should people go to find out more about your work? Uh,
3: you can look me up on www.ashleystokes.net or if you want me to mentor you for the Literary Consultancy at the uh, www.literaryconsultancy.com.
0: Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers
1: thanks for listening and thanks to Ashley for chatting with us Lily before you go tell us about one more event that's coming up
2: well we've got an exciting sort of mini cluster of events um, called Japan Now East we've got our Japanese resident Motoyuki Shibata, who's arriving next week at Dragonhorn, he'll be staying in the cottage. And we've also got a Japan Now East showcase with Hiromi Ito and Jeffrey Angles about wild grass on the riverbank. And we've also got a Translating Cultures workshop, which is going to be really exciting, um, and that's on Wednesday the 19th and Thursday the 20th of February.
1: I'm really looking forward to that. I think if you're interested in Japanese literature, Japanese culture, um, and also the craft of translation, it's definitely a great pairing of event and workshop to come yeah. along to.
2: And it's worth noting as well that there's no prior knowledge of Japanese required. So oh, yes. You can come so come along just to learn the craft.
1: Yeah, give it a try. No need to be intimidated.
0: Moto has actually been to Norwich a few times before and on an earlier visit back in 2016, we did interview him for an earlier iteration of this podcast. So we'll put a link down in the show notes again for that. It's uh, it's an old one from the archives, but well worth listening to. And yeah, do come along to Japan now to find out more. If you have questions or want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers' Centre. You can search on Facebook for our page or sign up to our newsletter at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. And that's a really great way to keep up to date on everything that we have coming up please do subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already and send us a review and rate the podcast over on whatever podcast app you happen to use thanks again keep writing and we will catch you on the next episode